It is a not uncommonly held misconception that Woody Allen's 1986 classic Hannah and Her Sisters was inspired by Anton Chekhov's Three Sisters. Premiering his play in 1901, the Russian master had spun the tale of siblings Olga, Masha and Irina as they each struggled with the rising tides of unfulfilled aspirations and what those surges brought with them. Frustration, jealousy and resentment. Yet even though Alan's plot does explore those emotional states, and even though he deliberately uses a Thanksgiving dinner to open his story, thereby echoing Chekhov's use of the springtime lunch to begin his, the truth is that Alan had already used Chekhov some eight years earlier, when he wrote his first serious drama, Interiors. There you have Renata, Flynn and Joey, who, despite their varying degrees of talent and success, each vie for their parents' affection and attention. Added to that, their father, Arthur, abruptly announces his wish to divorce their clinically depressed mother, Eve. Oh, I know that it's a little soon, perhaps, to talk about a reconciliation, but I don't see why we have to finalize a divorce. I don't see why we can't just go on the way we are. We should each of us be free to make other plans. Like what? What kind of Well, plan? in the event that we meet other people oh. become involved. Well, what are you saying? You want to remarry? Is that mm it? I'm not discussing that. Have you met someone? No. Oh, you're lying. Of course you've met someone. For all the clouds of her depression, Eve's instincts are correct. Arthur has met someone else, the vivacious, if rather vulgar, Pearl, and he wants to marry her. Clearly, a deeply dysfunctional and unhappy family. And that should give us a clue as to Alan's real source of inspiration. Часть первая. Глава первая. Все счастливые семьи похожи друг на друга. Um, <clears throat> let's try that again. All happy families resemble one another. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Played by Mia Farrow, Hannah meets regularly with her sisters Holly and Lee, played respectively by Diane Weiss and Barbara Hershey, to catch up on their recent events. But despite the fact that they are closely knit siblings, it's what they don't tell each other that houses the film's various plot lines. Hannah thinks her marriage to her husband Elliot is as solid and secure as his financial consultancy firm. But the truth is that Elliot, played by Michael Caine, is struggling to contain his crush on Lee. When he finally makes a move on her, he is dumbfounded to discover she reciprocates. Lee's choice in men is highly questionable, as she has been living with a much older artist, Frederick. Played by Max von Sydow, Frederick is a self-absorbed painter, whose pomposity means he all but refuses to interact with the outside world. Instead, his aim is to keep Lee as his muse, and it appears that Lee has fallen in line with that arrangement. That is, until Elliot reveals his feelings to her. For her part, Holly is a struggling actress whose limited talents are undermined by her dependency on alcohol and cocaine. Her addictions only feed her low self-esteem, which in turn only fuel her unfulfilled relationships with men. That part of her life reaches in a deer when she goes out on a date with a TV producer, Mickey, played by Woody Allen, who just happened to have been married to Hannah. So, on the surface at least, Hannah appears to be the most stable. However, we must not forget, she is completely ignorant as to the true state of her marriage. But is it any wonder, because the three sisters are the offspring of parents who were interested in having children, but never interested in raising them. Instead, spending the rest of their time bickering with one another. Liar! Liar! And at lunch she got drunker and drunker and finally she became Joan Collins. All my life 
I've had to put up with insults from this non-person, this, 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 this haircut that passes for a man. But I could never support it. It's a good thing we had a talented daughter. I can only hope that she was mine. With you as her mother, her father could be anybody in actor's equity. She's talented, so it's unlikely she's yours. But it's not just a notion of unhappy families that likens Hannah and her sisters to Tolstoy's novel. There is another element that likens it to many other novels. Alan's script is episodic in structure, with several sequences separated from the others by way of intertitle cards. The Stanislavski catering company in action, the anxiety of the man in the booth, Dusty just bought this huge house in Southampton. Much the same way authors partition their plots by way of chapters. Interspersed throughout are several flashbacks, and then, as if all that were not enough, Alan blithely slips in several voiceover passages, affording us access to the characters' private thoughts. Mickey, Elliot, Hannah, Holly and Lee, they each get one. Precious few films use voiceover so fluently, let alone have so many internal monologues. Naturally, I get taken home first. Or well, obviously, he prefers April. Of course, I was so tongue-tied all night. I can't believe I said that about the Guggenheim. My stupid little roller skating joke. I should never tell jokes. Mom can tell them, and Hannah, but I kill him. I'm dying. I'm dying. I know it. There's a spot on my lungs. All right, now take it easy, will you? It's not on your lungs. It's on your ear. It's the same thing, isn't it? Jeez, oh, I can't sleep. Oh, God, there's a tumor in my head the size of a basketball. What passion today with Lee? She's a volcano. It was a totally fulfilling experience, just as I dreamed it would be. That's what it was. It was like living out a dream, a great dream. And now I feel very good and cozy being here next to Hannah. Actors often speak about how much latitude Alan gives them. He has always preferred naturalism in his performers, and although he has written or co-written every single one of his own films, he has always granted his cast a remarkable degree of autonomy when it comes to their delivering his dialogue. And quite frequently, that dialogue overlaps. Alan's direction to his cast simply being, do not listen passively, but rather respond audibly. With such character-centred direction, it should come as little surprise that he has never storyboarded his films, preferring instead to block out the scene with his actors before deciding where best to put the camera. He prefers to film the scene in single takes, which means very few close-ups, which in turn means that the actors perform in real time without the performances being mediated within the virtual space of editing. Such direction requires either a great degree of confidence or experience, most likely both. But very few directors like overlapping dialogue, simply because it disrupts their ability to cut into the film in a conventional way, with close-ups or over-the-shoulder reverses. But Alan keeps the event going in long master shots, covering the scene all in one fluid motion. And there is no better example of that fluidity than the circling tracking shot, where the three sisters meet up in a restaurant for what is supposed to be a relaxing evening meal. You treat me like a loser. How? 
You never have any faith in my plans. You always undercut my enthusiasm. Not so. No, I think I've been very supportive. I, I try to give you honest, constructive advice. Mm. I'm, I'm always happy to help you financially. I think I've gone out of my way to, to introduce you to interesting single men. There's uh, nothing losers. I, oh, all oh, losers. You're too demanding. You know, I could always tell what you thought of me by the type of men you fixed me up you're with. You're crazy. That's not true. Hey, Hannah, I know I'm mediocre. Oh, stop attacking oh, Hannah. Okay. She's going through a really rough time right now. Hannah and her sisters marked an artistic shift in Alan's films. For his previous eight pictures, beginning with Annie Hall and going all the way through to The Purple Rose of Cairo, Gordon Willis had served as cinematographer, and in that time, he had imprinted his own inimitable framing and lighting design. And across all those films, you can see Willis preferred not to move the camera, opting instead to create a meticulously composed frame, which was compelling enough that the characters could move around in it but its fixed position underlined the subtext of their dialogue. You can see it in Alan's pictures, most expressively, in Manhattan, Stardust Memories and Broadway Danny Rose. But like every artist, new ideas are needed in order to avoid aesthetic mortification. So for Hannah and her sisters, Alan engaged with Italian cinematographer Carlo Di Palma. And so happy was their collaboration that the partnership continued on for another 10 features. And it was with De Palma that Alan reverted to a looser visual style. Which is somewhat curious, because before coming to America, De Palma had frequently collaborated with Italian maestro Michelangelo Antonioni, whose own visual style frequently focused on geometrical patterns that often restricted the characters within the shot. Which was something Gordon Willis had done most explicitly in All the President's Men. You guys are about to write a story that says the former Attorney General, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Just be sure you're right. It's one thing to watch a Woody Allen film. It's quite another to listen to his use of music. Other American film directors, most notably Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, Richard Linklater and Wes Anderson, are all renowned for how they expropriate popular songs and by setting them to images, inject into them new meaning. Woody Allen is the same. His knowledge of jazz and the Great American Songbook is encyclopedic and evident in all of his films. But what is extremely satisfying in Hannah is the way he arranges the music to suit each character. Mickey's comical, angst-ridden life plays out to the tunes of Count Basie. Elliot's affection for his wife Hannah is linked to Harry James. Elliot's affair with Hannah's sister Lee is underscored by the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Different music again offers counterpoint to Hannah's other sister, Holly. She goes on a disastrous date with Mickey and drags him to a raucous club to listen to Canadian punk band The 39 Steps. Then Holly goes on another unsuccessful date with another man, David, an architect whose choice in music brings him to Manhattan's Metropolitan Opera House, where he enjoys a production of Puccini's Manon Lesco. Solo, 
And as a counterpoint to all that is the acrimonious but insoluble marriage of Hannah's parents, lived out the strains of Rogers and Hart's Bewitched. It is often correctly pointed out that Hollywood has an allergy towards actresses over a certain age. But when it comes to female roles of any age, there are precious few writers who have so consistently provided as many fully realised characters as Woody Allen. Just look at how many have been honoured with or nominated for Oscars, BAFTAs, Golden Globes or Screen Actor Guild Awards. Diane Keaton, Geraldine Page, Maureen Stapleton, Mary Beth Hurt, Mariel Hemingway, Mia Farrow, Diane Weiss, Angelica Houston, Judy Davis, Mira Servino, Samantha Morton, Tracy Ullman, Scarlett Johansson, Penelope Cruz, Kate Blanchett and Sally Hawkins. 16 actresses, 6 Oscars, 4 Golden Globes, 4 BAFTAs, 2 Screen Actors Guild Awards and 35 more nominations. Now I began by citing several Russian literary sources but elsewhere in Allen's career, he is drawn from American and English writers. Blue Jasmine echoes Tennessee Williams's A Streetcar Named Desire, while A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy has clear allusions to Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. And then you have European filmmakers such as Ingmar Bergman. Hannah is reminiscent of Fanny and Alexander, while Husbands and Wives covers much of the same ground as Scenes from a Marriage. The plot of Deconstructing Harry is a direct lift from Wild Strawberries. However, Woody Allen's biggest cinematic influence has undoubtedly been Italian maestro Federico Fellini. In Allen's early episodic effort, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, the third chapter, Why Do Some Women Have Trouble Reaching Orgasm, clearly mimics Fellini's visual style. His 1981 picture, Stardust Memories, carries the same structure and creative concerns as Eight and a Half. The Purple Rose of Cairo and a segment in From Rome with Love can be sourced to the White Sheik, while Radio Days echoes Amacord. Both Alice and Midnight in Paris take flights of fancy similar to Juliet of the Spirits. Sweet and Lowdown resembles La Strada. Celebrity and Scoop both mirror the Dolce Vita. Small Time Crooks carries a similar line as Il Bidone, only the crimes in Fellini's film are tragic, not comic. But to his credit, Alan has always been upfront about his influences. Oh, I've stolen from uh, the best. I mean, I've stolen from, from Bergman, I've stolen from Groucho, I've stolen from Chaplin, I've stolen from Keaton, from, uh, from Martha Graham, from Fellini. I mean, I, I'm a shameless uh, thief. So, more often than not, Alan's inspirations are quite apparent, and sometimes they tower over his own efforts. But other times, as in the case of Hannah, he delivers a work that fuses several sources which he fashions into a form of his own. And through that, he engages with themes that pepper those inspirations. But nowhere in all of Alan's films do those themes coalesce as poignantly as here. Family, fidelity, creativity, morality, mortality, honesty, integrity, love, loss, 
loneliness, fate, virtue, and the meaning of life. You know, the stuff of comedy. <laughs>